Let's open our Bibles once again to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, we come into chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses together this morning in Luke 15. Jesus tells three stories as we are going to see. Let me read through those verses with you. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman... If she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we've got a series of stories The first of those three stories we find there in verses 4 through 6, and the second of those stories is in verses 8 through 9, and then there's another one which we'll look at next week, which is in verses 11 through the end of the chapter, and there is a connection to all these stories. We're going to be looking, as I said, at the first of those two stories today. And I want you to see that connection as we begin working our way through this chapter. The first story, of course, as we've just read, is the story of the lost sheep. The second is of the lost coin. The third, which we'll look at next week, is of the lost son. And Jesus has a common lesson that he wants us to glean from all of these stories, so it's important that we take note of the connection between them. The first two verses of Luke 15 provide the setup for the stories that Jesus is about to tell. Jesus is having a meal with those who are considered to be unholy. Now, if you remember, back in chapter 14... Jesus was having a meal with those who considered themselves to be holy, to be righteous. And now we see that he is with tax collectors and sinners, and they are coming near him to listen to him. And the complaint that the Pharisees and the scribes have is that he receives sinners and he eats with them. So they're grumbling about who Jesus is having fellowship with. They consider it to be 
beneath the station of a supposed prophet of Israel to associate with these kinds of unclean and unholy people. And they think, frankly, that it calls into question Jesus' own character. Who would associate with these kinds of people unless you were just like them? And so they see this calling into question Jesus' own claims about who he is and why he has come and what he's doing. So they're grumbling there in verses 1 and 2 about his fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, and that is what sets up the stories which follow. And so the first parable comes in verses 3 to 6. It's the story of the lost sheep. And then, very pointedly, Jesus gives an application to that story in verse 7. And then comes a second story in verses 8 and 9, the story of the lost coin. And then again, very quickly, very pointedly, there is an application there in verse 10. And this, by the way, lets us know that Jesus didn't simply tell stories to entertain people. His stories are drawn from common events in the lives of the people to whom he spoke, but he has a purpose behind them. He's seeking to communicate some kind of spiritual truth. Now, sometimes he speaks in parables because he doesn't want people to understand what he's saying. Jesus is very clear about that. He explains why he speaks in parables. We've seen this before. And he speaks in parables because he doesn't want to make things clear. Sometimes it's just the opposite of what we normally think when we think of parables. We think, well, Jesus is a good teacher. And teachers, you know, they tell stories. They give illustrations to try to make clear the point that they're trying to make. And sometimes, like now, Jesus does that. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he tells a parable and he just leaves it murky. Sometimes he tells a parable to the crowds and then he takes his disciples aside and says, let me tell you what I meant. But sometimes, like here, Jesus tells the story and then immediately he explains it. And so there's not... A lot of confusion at this point. We come here into chapter 15 and said, all right, well, there's not a lot to figure out here. Jesus explicitly tells us what these stories are to communicate. So that makes it a lot easier on me. Just read the text. It's right there. Jesus does it himself. I don't have to come up with all these interesting applications. Jesus does it. So, He's telling these things to us because there is something of vital importance that he wants to communicate. Now, if you look at this passage, you'll notice that there are several things on Jesus' mind. The first thing we notice is that he is very, very concerned that we would understand the importance, the necessity of repentance. On multiple occasions in this passage, he's going to highlight the importance of someone repenting of their sin and the response, the attitude toward God 
or the attitude of God, I should say, toward someone who does repent of their sin. That's very important for us to understand. Another thing to note is that our Lord wants to highlight the grace of God in searching for and finding lost sinners. This passage is designed to highlight the mercy of God and the love of God and the grace of God. That's clearly right there in the forefront. And then we also find in this passage another manifestation of the grace of God, which is manifest in his reception of repentant sinners. Despite what they deserve, despite what they have done, if they will repent, God will receive them. And in fact, one of the things that we're going to note here is that the only kind of sinner God will receive is a repentant sinner. So these are the things Jesus is emphasizing here, but they're not the only things that Jesus is doing. He's also revealing to us something about the Pharisees. And it's something we're very familiar with. Jesus has exposed the heart of the Pharisees over and over and over again, and he does the same thing here. The refusal, as we will see, to join in the heavenly joy that Jesus describes in verses 7 and 10, proves that they do not have the heart of God. They are not interested in the eternal state of those that they deem to be beneath them. They don't understand even their own condition. They don't understand their own need. So let's take a look at these very common everyday events that Jesus speaks of in these stories and seek to take to heart what Jesus wants to teach us. First thing we see, of course, is that Jesus receives sinners, that all of us at one time or another, we've lost something. And what Jesus is doing in these stories is talking about loss. We've all lost something that is very important to us and then found it again. That's the good part. It's a very common experience. And Jesus takes that common experience in this passage and uses it to make a vital Spiritual application. This past week, I lost my car keys. I always put them in the same place. I don't know what happens every now and then. They are not where they're supposed to be. And then the search begins. And you go through the pockets of jackets and pants that you have not worn in months but you've looked everywhere else I finally found it it was on the passenger seat of my car I how why I have no idea but we do that we've we've all lost things that are important to us then 
We find them and we rejoice that we have found them. The background to what Jesus is doing here in this story is that he was being criticized by the scribes and the Pharisees, as we see in the first two verses, for associating with tax collectors and sinners. These were the people who were looked down upon as immoral and unworthy and unclean, and it was considered to be beneath a righteous man, much less one who is being portrayed at least at this point as a prophet of the Lord, to be associated with the likes of them. But Jesus, of course, wants to teach a very important spiritual lesson, and he wants to teach that to us, of course, but also to the Pharisees and scribes, because they need to understand this. And in understanding this, maybe they will understand their own hearts as well. He wanted to show them their own need. And so in that context where Jesus is communing and fellowshipping with the unclean, where the scribes and the Pharisees were grumbling against him, he tells these two stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And interestingly, in both stories, he makes the main character of the story someone that the scribes and the Pharisees would have looked down upon, at the very least. In the first story, it's the shepherd. Now, Jesus meant to bring to our minds all of the wonderful things that the Old Testament teaches us about shepherds. Because in the Old Testament, of course, the shepherd is so often an image of God. Just go back and read the 23rd Psalm. God is described as our shepherd. And that imagery is repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus meant to do that. But what we need to understand is that the Pharisees and the scribes would not have had in their mind the Old Testament image of a shepherd. They would have had in their minds the first century cultural image of a shepherd. And shepherds were not highly regarded, to say the least. Shepherds in that day were typically viewed as the lowest of the low. They were the dregs of society. They were there with tax collectors. They were viewed as notorious liars and immoral people. Their testimony wasn't even allowed in court. And so he picks as the main character of his first story someone that the scribes and the Pharisees would not have thought very highly of, which highlights the very situation in which he finds himself. It's also that cultural background, just to throw this in, a little extra for you this morning. It's the cultural background of Luke's birth narrative. When our Savior is born, who do the angels come to? Shepherds. This is what makes that account so powerful. And of course, you remember what the shepherds did after that announcement. They immediately went to find the child. 
that they had been told about. And so the first visitors that the Messiah ever has are shepherds, not kings. The wise men came some time later. First visitors ever to come to see the Messiah were shepherds who were looked down upon by everyone. And now Jesus comes back to those same kinds of people to get across his point here in Luke 15. Now, in the second story, he speaks of this woman who loses a coin. And apparently, the coins that she had... We're told specifically in verse 8 that there were 10 silver coins. These were her dowry. That would not have been a very large dowry, so we can assume that this was a relatively poor woman who must have been married to a relatively poor man because a man from a wealthier station wouldn't have married a woman with such a small dowry to bring into the marriage. And so for her to lose one of the coins of her dowry, which was the only thing that she had brought into this marriage that was hers, it was a tremendously important thing in regard to her security. For her to lose that coin was a big deal, and the Pharisees wouldn't have thought very highly of a poor woman. And so Jesus makes a shepherd and a poor woman the prime characters in his stories in order to uphold before the Pharisees and the scribes what it was that they were missing when they looked at how Jesus related to tax collectors and sinners, as the Pharisees called them. And Jesus teaches several important things here for us. The first is simply this, that he receives sinners. Jesus receives sinners. The scribes and the Pharisees, if you look at verse 2, they grumble against Jesus, and they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, they meant that as an insult. But the passage makes it clear that this was, in fact, true of Jesus. He did receive sinners. And boy, isn't that a good thing. This church doesn't allow good people to join. We have a membership requirement in this regard. You've got to be a sinner to join this church. Those are the only kinds of people we let in. Fortunately, it's not a very exclusive group. (laughs) Because we're all sinners. It would be very difficult for the Pharisees to join us. The Pharisees looked upon tax collectors and sinners that Jesus was meeting as unworthy, but they did not look upon themselves as unworthy, as sinners. They thought of themselves as righteous. And Jesus, in this passage, is stressing the fact that he only receives sinners. But he will receive all sinners if they will repent.
he'll go and that'll be fleshed out in a little bit. But this is so vital for us to understand. J.C. Ryle says of this passage, Do we have a sense of our own sin? Do we feel bad and wicked and guilty and deserving of God's anger? Is the remembrance of our past lives of sin bitter to us? Does the, recon- does, does the recollection of our past conduct make us ashamed? Then we are the very people who ought to apply to Christ, just as we are, pleading nothing of our own, making no useless delay. Christ will receive us graciously and pardon us freely and give us eternal life because he is one that receives sinners. In the late 19th century, there was a man named John Duncan who was a professor of Hebrew and Old Testament at the University of Edinburgh. He was perhaps the foremost uh, scholar of Hebrew in the English-speaking world, at least. So much so that he earned the nickname Rabbi, though he was not Jewish. He was a brilliant man who, as a college student, was an atheist He had grown up in a Christian home, but like many, he walked away from the faith in which he was raised, even to the point of denying the existence of God, much less the gospel of Jesus Christ. Until, that is, one of his college professors convinced him of his error, convinced him that God does, in fact, exist. There is no other explanation for the world around us. Duncan writes that he danced with joy on the bridge of Dee in Aberdeen when he realized that there was a God in this world. Even though he knew that if God were to call him to account, he would stand before that God and be pronounced guilty and condemned. You see, at first, although he had come to believe in the existence of God, he was still in his sin. Because believing that God is there does not redeem. No one has ever been redeemed by believing that God exists. He understood, even in that condition, That mere belief in the existence of God does not save. Well, eventually the grace of God brought John Duncan to saving faith in Jesus Christ through the gospel of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, this gospel in which he had been raised. And yet Duncan endured many struggles because of the life that he had lived before he came to Christ. And he had great difficulty experiencing the assurance of God's love for him. He found the answer to his struggles here in this passage, in Luke 15. And because he was such a brilliant man, he put the answer into the form of a logical syllogism. Here's what he wrote. 
right? A syllogism, if you've forgotten from the time you were in college, right? Taking your, your you know, first year logic course. A syllogism has three parts. There is a major premise, there is a minor premise, and then there is a conclusion. His major premise, Jesus receives sinners. His minor premise, John Duncan is a sinner. His conclusion, Jesus receives John Duncan. That is the greatest piece of philosophical work that I have ever read. And if you know Christ, you can put your name there. Jesus receives sinners. Jim Harrison is a sinner. Jesus receives Jim Harrison. Praise God for his grace. In other words, it is the truth that Jesus receives sinners, not those who have cleaned up their lives and have taken care of their own situation, but those who know they can't clean themselves up and yet are repentant, have come to understand their sin and grieve over it and hate it. He receives sinners John Duncan is a sinner, therefore Jesus receives John Duncan. The spiritual logic of that syllogism is absolutely true and irresistible. But the beauty of it depends upon our recognition of the truth that we are indeed sinners. And that's the second thing we learn in this passage. You see it again in verse 1 in comparison to verse 7. The second truth that we, we see here is that not only does Jesus receive sinners, but you cannot hear Jesus unless you know that you need him. All the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to what? To listen to him. Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You've got those who come to listen to Jesus, and then you've got others who don't think they need to listen to Jesus because they don't understand their need. There he is, hanging out with Tax collectors and sinners. And what are they doing? They're listening to him. They're, they're, they, they want to hear. Why is that? Well, first of all, you've got Jesus, one of the very few that they have ever come across, who is desirous of speaking with them. Everybody else, except for other tax collectors and sinners, avoid them. No one wants to talk to them. No one wants to have anything to do with them. And here's Jesus, and he's willing. And he's not only willing to fellowship with them, but they understand that what he has to say to them is a source of hope. 
these people whom all of society looks down upon don't have to remain there. Jesus offers them something more, something better. And so they want to hear him. They want to listen to him. The Pharisees don't believe that they can get anything from Jesus. They don't believe they need anything. And so they have no reason to listen to him. Instead, what are they doing? Verse 2, they're grumbling against him. And then you come down to verse 7, and it's very clear that they thought of themselves as righteous. So if they're already righteous, what do they need? They don't need any hope. They've already got everything that they need, they think. And so the scribes and the Pharisees don't hear Jesus. They don't listen to him because they don't think they need him. When Jesus says in this passage that heaven rejoices more over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need repentance, don't hear Jesus saying that there are people in the world who are righteous and so don't need to repent. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there are a lot of people in the world who think they're righteous and so don't understand that they need to repent. And the end result is that they are lost. They don't repent because they don't think they need to. And Jesus is illustrating this spiritual truth. The good news is not good news until you understand the bad news first. And until you understand the bad news for yourself, and you understand that the bad news applies to you, not him. And in this passage, it's clear, these, these tax collectors, these sinners who are coming to fellowship with Jesus and to hear Jesus, they want to hear him because they understand their need. This is, this is the story that Jesus tells. Pharisee comes into the temple. Tax collector comes into the temple. One says, boy, Lord, I am so glad I'm not like these other people. The other guy says, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And it's the one who recognized that he was a sinner who went home justified that day. You cannot be justified if you don't think you need to be justified. And so the tax collectors and the sinners are hanging on every word, but not so the Pharisees and scribes. They're not listening because they don't understand their need. And so the question, which so obviously comes to us this morning, is do you understand your need? Do you see yourself as God sees you? As a fallen person? As a sinner? As someone who is in need of a Savior? And that Savior is Jesus Christ. There is no other. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved.
there's one more thing we need to learn in this passage, and it's that God himself rejoices over sinners who repent. God rejoices over sinners who repent. Look at how Jesus puts this in verses 7 and 10. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Jesus is telling you about the attitude of our loving heavenly Father towards those who repent. Why? Because when you really understand your sin... When you really understand who you are, when you understand what you deserve, one of the things that you fear is that if I repent, I will be humiliated and the consequences will be unbearable. And so Jesus, in this passage, displays before us the lavish love of God for repentant sinners. We do not need to fear when we come to the Father in repentance. December 10th, 2008, Bernie Madoff sat down with his two sons and told them that the massive fortune which he had accumulated and that they had all shared in was based on a lie. It was not brought about through his brilliant financial planning, but through an elaborate Ponzi scheme. His sons immediately went and spoke to their attorney, who informed them that they had no choice but to turn their father in. If they did not, they were told they would become accomplices in their father's crimes. They followed the advice of their attorney, and on December 11th, 2008, Bernie Madoff was arrested. He had built thousands of people out of billions of dollars. We all remember. He had ruined fortunes. He ruined his reputation. And eventually, he himself was sentenced to 150 years in prison. But that was only the beginning of the consequences that Madoff would face. Two years after his arrest, one of his sons took his own life. His other son would later die of cancer, and his wife would cut off all communication with him. And then a year ago, April of 2021, Bernie Madoff died in prison. His fraud went on for years and years and years. So why did it take so long for him to admit what he had done? The pressure must have been unbearable. And yet, he preferred to endure that, wondering when the knock was going to come on the door to fessing up and admitting it all. Why did he not admit it until everything came crashing down around him and he knew that he was about to be exposed? 
Why did he wait until he had no choice? Well, I don't think it's hard to understand. None of us, I hope, have defrauded people out of $65 billion. If you have, you are not tithing enough. (laughs) None of us have ruined the lives of thousands of people. But we've sinned, and we've sought to avoid having that sin known. Certainly, he feared the humiliation. He feared the consequences. And that humiliation and those consequences were very real. And the consequences of our sin are just as real. That's why Jesus tells us what he's telling us here. What he's saying is, your heavenly father is more willing to forgive you, a sinner who deserves to be judged, than you are to ask him to forgive you. Your heavenly father is more willing to be gracious to you than you are to repent. Jesus is telling us here that God rejoices over sinners who repent precisely to encourage us to repent and to come to him for mercy. He's encouraging us to understand and to acknowledge that our God will receive us. Again, J.C. Ryle has written this, Let the person who is afraid to repent consider well these verses we are not looking at. These verses we are looking at and to be afraid no more. There is nothing on God's part to justify your fears. An open door is set before you. A free pardon awaits you. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let the people, let the person who is ashamed to repent consider these verses and cast shame aside. What the world mocks and jests at, we rejoice at. When the world mocks and jests at your repentance, while man is mocking, angels are rejoicing. The very change which sinners call foolishness is a change which fills heaven with joy. Have you repented? That is, after all, the spiritual question which concerns us. What shall it profit us to know God's love if we do not use it? If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. We just read a little while ago, Psalm 84. Here again, the last line of Psalm 84. How blessed is the man who trusts in you. You can trust in God. You can come to him and lay all of your sin before him. No matter how heinous, no matter how 
heavy, the weight of guilt, which is attached to your sin, you can come and lay it before him and he will take it from you. Because he is a gracious God. And then the scripture says he'll do something else. He'll forget about it. He will forget about it. You will remember it, because we have this thing about torturing ourselves. But God will not. He will throw it as far as the east is from the west. That's the kind of God who pours out his mercy upon us when we listen to the words of his Son, when we repent, when we come to him for forgiveness. In the history of humanity, there has never been a time when someone has come to God in genuine repentance and God has told them no. Never once. That's what this passage is pressing upon us. Have we repented? And do we trust that when we come to the the, the Lord with our sin, he will indeed forgive? In this room, there are those who have repented and who have been found. And I have no doubt that there are those in this room who have not repented and remain in their lost condition. You don't have to remain in that lost condition. You don't need to be numbered among the lost. Instead, you can be numbered among the sinners who have repented and been found. You can be the source of rejoicing in heaven. And that can be true of you now. Give up your sin. Set aside your concerns about consequences and humiliation. Bring your sin to the Lord through Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven. You can be numbered among the sinners who have repented and who have been found, who have been received. And as by the grace of God we repent, that's what we find. There is a heavenly Father waiting for us, waiting to be more gracious to us than we ever thought possible waiting to be more gracious to us than we have ever been to anyone else or to ourselves. Come this morning in repentance. You will be received. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your grace. Thank you for what Jesus has done. Thank you, Father, that that mercy and that grace continues to be offered. But Father, we recognize as well that there is a day coming when that will not be the case. There is an end point 
when Jesus does return, the day of salvation will be done. So, Father, I pray this morning that anyone who is here listening to your word today, who is yet lost, Father, find them. Draw them to your Son. Convict them of their sin. Show them their need. And receive them when they come. Father, for those of us who have been received, thank you. May we never take it for granted. May we never seek to minimize our sin. For by minimizing our sin, Father, we minimize your grace. And we dare not do that. Have your way, Father, this day. In Jesus' name, amen.